This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey, this is Joe's sister, Nikki. I think I might be the only girl in the world who has a brother who spends his entire day in the basement pretending he has an internet radio show. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and happy Earth Day. What a celebration, too. Dolphins in the canals in Venice. Amazing air quality everywhere. People beginning to not hoard toilet paper. It's a miracle. Now, if only 22 million of us had jobs, well, if you have an idea to make the Earth or your life better and you don't know where to start, today, we're going to get you moving on the path to success. Don't wait to start. Go ahead and start ugly. Today, say hello to Chris Kremitzos, who's going to share how to get your business idea rolling. Plus, how much money does it cost to cover your children's education? We'll tackle 529 college savings plans on our headline segment. And then we'll toss out the Haven life to a lucky caller. Of course, I'll treat you to some Earth-themed trivia. And now, two guys who probably don't even know how to recycle, unless it's a bad dad joke, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. I think we're at the point in the quarantine now where Cheryl knows all my dad jokes. In fact, I get like halfway done and she finishes it off. I think I sent you the uh, data sore thing, right? <laughs> That's been making the rounds on the interwebs. <laughs> well, apparently, that's not his first rodeo. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. There's all sorts of videos on the internet of this dude. Just in the moment the kids say it, he goes crazy. <laughs> and his wife gets really ticked off. And I've got a I've got a bored panda thing I found yesterday about husbands and wives upsetting each other during this. This one comes from Dan Reagan originally. Says me can't find the sea salt. Wife next to the paprika. Me no, it isn't. She comes in to look. Bottle of sea salt magically appears right next to the paprika. <laughs> exactly. Yep. <laughs> and then one more. This comes from Rainbow Kingdom. My husband on Twitter. My husband and I were having a hypothetical conversation about opening a restaurant after all this is over, and it was really fun until we started to disagree on how we'd run things and who we'd hire. Now our restaurant's going under. We're getting a divorce. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to coronavirus time humor for the win. I'm Joe Salci. Hi, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And across the card table from me for another Earth Day. This is our ninth Earth Day podcasting together. It's I'm, Mr. OG. I'm impressed that you have that. It's our ninth anniversary of Earth Day. I gotcha. When you said I gotcha, I thought that meant I gotcha something. I thought it meant you got me something. Oh. Because you were bringing it up. Well, no, I, I hinted it all week. That the odd years are your years. So cool. Uh, so next year's my year then. This is a, this is a great show we got today, dude. Chris Kermitzos coming down to the basement. This gentleman uh, runs not only runs one of the biggest conferences about podcasting, but he also is a small business owner himself. He created a documentary called The Messengers. This is a guy who is a natural connector and knows how to start businesses. He's got a new book out called Start Ugly. And normally, we wouldn't talk about starting businesses on this show. However, I think enough of us have been cooped up at home that we start thinking, you know, when this is over, you know what I could do? So we thought, if you're going to start it, 
Let's get it started. Today's show brought to you by The Stacker. That's where you find out everything about what's going on in the basement. Last week, we had a couple fantastic YouTube hangouts. One was Scott Heiser talking about health insurance and health coverage. And it was just, it was, it was a fantastic hour of on healthcare. And then followed up Friday by Dr. Daniel Crosby. Good stuff. Doing it again this week. Today, in fact, we're hanging out with uh, Tracy McCubbin, who is a declutter expert. Once again, if you're hanging out at home. Now's the time. <laughs> if you're through the internet, yeah. if you've already watched everything on Netflix. <laughs> to find out where might those. be time to open up that closet. <laughs> to find out where those are happening and for other money lessons, stackybedjamins.com forward slash stacker. All right. Great show. Chris Kremitzel's waiting. So let's get on the headlines, OG. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from Investment News. There are all of these repercussions of this crisis that you don't think about. This is one I wouldn't have thought of in a hundred years. Written by Bruce Kelly. Merrill Lynch pulls back on advisor trainee program. While Merrill Lynch moved some financial advisors and trainees to work on client inquiries and processing federal assistance programs in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, the thundering herd is also tapping the brakes, at least for the near, near future, on hiring any new financial advisor trainees. At any given time, Merrill Lynch has 3,000 to 3,500 financial advisor trainees working across its giant wealth management and private banking platform, which together with Bank of America Private Bank posted $4.94 billion in total revenues for the first quarter of the year, an increase of 2.4% compared to the first quarter of 2019. According to the first quarter earnings report of its parent company, Bank of America Corporation, which was released last Wednesday. But the limitations created by COVID-19 on businesses of all stripes are hurting potential new hires at Merrill Lynch. There's no ability for face-to-face interviews with potential hires because of social distancing required by the coronavirus, said a senior Merrill Lynch executive who asked not to be named. We have offers for people to join us in April in the training program, but other new hire activities will be paused. The focus for the management team needs to turn to existing teammates. So do you think this is about helping the uh, the existing Merrill Lynch advisors cope? Or Well, it's, it's everything. It's the fact that probably revenues are going to be down. It's probably that every company in America, including the big ones and the really small ones, are trying to baseline everything right now, you know, and saying, okay, what can we get by with and who can we get by with? You know, stuff like this has both a blessing and a curse. The curse side of it, of course, is the fact that there's people out there losing jobs by the by the millions per week, you know, and that just kind of seems to be the news about that. If you're a business owner and you're still okay, what you're finding is that you're finding maybe there was some excess in your process. There was some excess in your system. Yeah, but new and- new advisors aren't excess in the system, though. Well, I mean, but their excess in terms of maybe we don't need to hire 100,000 new people every year. We can hire 50,000. Obviously, there's some marketing aspects of that and their projections around client acquisition and all that sort of stuff as well. But um, I think you're going to see this in every industry. I think when the restaurants reopen, they're going to do it with a limited amount of staff. I think they're going to do it with when the retail operations open, it's going to be a limited amount of staff just to kind of build it back up again, as opposed to say, well, everybody that we had yesterday, we can just bring back. So that's not necessarily true. When he was talking about the face-to-face interview, face-to-face interview that important? Well, you know, I've, I've got a theory about this. We have been completely virtual for six years in our business. And earlier in my career, I put a lot of emphasis on being able to kind of read the room and sitting there, you have that opportunity to, to see your client or your potential client or whomever, they lean back and cross their arms and you can read that nonverbal communication. Without that, it's harder to discern how the conversation is going, if that makes sense. Yeah. So you have to be really good at the other stuff. You have to be really good at listening for the other verbal cues and any other sort of stuff tonality wise that you can pick up on. Since most of the advisors that are around in the world still, and will be for the foreseeable future, I think, working face-to-face with clients, you've got to have a face-to-face interview process to be able to say, how's this person stand up? 
in front of other people. Part of what we do is, you know, you got to kind of look the part for whatever reason. For our clients, a bag on your head works as looking the part. But <laughs> today it does. The rest, today, the today re- in particular, just way ahead of the curve. Uh, the rest of the world trying like to catch up with you. This guy can see the future, man. He's amazing. He's awesome. But you know, obviously, we you know we have a good relationship with our listeners, you know, and have for a long time now. So this will change. It, People it, figure out how to do recruiting, you know, over the phone and over Zoom and all that sort of stuff. Also, if they haven't already figured it out. You and I were talking about this as the economy hopefully begins to come online over the next few weeks, few months, slowly. What's the first thing people should be assessing as they kind of regroup and look at the damage? Haircuts. (laughs) Personal style. (laughs) Remember that sweatpants is not generally accepted outside the home. No, you shouldn't wear that. Yeah. yeah. Are we going to see a new fashion trend? But seriously, I think it starts with income, doesn't it? And then where does that income go? And like rethinking everything, I think as income begins to flow to your wallet again, hopefully, as, Absolutely. as you go back to work, you, you think, man, I need to do a better job of making sure that my dollars, no matter how good you manage your dollars, mm-hmm. I need to do a better job of looking at how, how my money flows. Well, you're exactly right. I think everybody's personal austerity plan is different. So what you've done over the last four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or however long you've been locked up, so to speak, the challenging thing, the opportunity that you have, if you think about this from a strategic standpoint, is to try to recreate that in the future. Now, there's some stuff that you can't recreate. You can't recreate no transportation costs if you have to go to the office. Right now, you're not paying any money on transportation costs. No bus passes, no taxis, no Ubers or probably not a lot of gasoline either. But are there other things that you're not doing right now? Great example that uh, we were talking about, you and I were, we're only going out to eat once every two weeks now. (laughs) I'm like literally have it scheduled. Ooh, it's the Friday we get to order out today. Hey, I can tell you eight weeks ago, it wasn't that well thought out. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. What's for dinner? I don't know. Let's just go get something. And now it's much more uh, strategic. You have this opportunity to kind of baseline everything right now. And as you come out of it, you can decide how much of it you want to put back. And this opportunity hopefully doesn't come along very reminds often. Me, reminds me of that great quote that just because you were somebody yesterday doesn't mean you need to be it tomorrow. Like, I think we get wrapped up in continuity, but there really is no such thing. I can, I can well, change it. Not anymore now. Yeah, They're true. I can change everything tomorrow. So. Hey, in our second headline, I know that a lot of people just trying to uh, figure out how to put food on the table, but uh, we're getting close to graduation time, which reminds us every year, OG, yep. that college is still around the corner. It it will come, and uh, that Might means be around two corners this year. But that means that paying for tuition is a big thing. Americans, this is a CNBC piece written by Robert Exley Jr. Uh, Americans owe more than one point seven trillion dollars in student debt. On top of everything. On top of all this, in other great news, <laughs> there's still student loan interest is at zero percent on the one point seven trillion of loans. Yes, L- locked until well, not all of it, but a, a chunk of it. Yeah, if you're like many current or prospective parents, Robert writes, you want your kids to go to college without taking on massive loans, but knowing how much to save and the best way to save it can be a challenging task for parents already running low on sleep. This is a primer, this piece here, OG, I don't think I need to read anymore. It's about uh, 529 plans. And there are people out there listening who don't even know what a 529 plan is. And I thought this might be a good time as you're reassessing where your money goes in the next couple weeks, couple months. Maybe some of it should go toward a 529 plan. How does it work, OG? Well, a 529 plan is a specific type of account, just like a 401k is, a specific type of account or a 403b. A 529 is really centered around higher education costs. And there's been some loosening of those regulations as it relates to what constitutes higher education costs over the last several years. But generally, it works a lot like a Roth IRA. So you put money in and it grows. And as long as you use it for the specified purpose, which is education costs, uh, then the benefits received out of that are tax-free. 
obviously just like any other sort of investment, the longer time horizon you have, the more advantageous that 529 uh, becomes kind of a rule of thumb kind of finger in the wind type of calculation that you might think about is for every year of college that you want to fund every year of kind of average public university, you got to save about a hundred dollars a month per year per kid starting the day they're born. So if you say, well, I want to save for all four years of my kid's college. Awesome. About 400 bucks a month will do it. Maybe it's a little bit higher. Maybe it ends up being a little bit lower, you know, but you're in the ballpark. Well, hey, OG, I'm t- my kid's 12. I haven't started yet. Well, the number's more than 400 bucks a month, you know, because <laughs> you miss that opportunity uh, for compounding for a lot of it. The definitions of a expense that's eligible under 529 are also pretty broad. It doesn't have to be just tuition. It can be books and fees. It could be room and board. It can be uh, transportation to and from. So there's a lot of leeway. And it operates very much like your HSA operates. So... In an HSA, you have a, an expense and then you get reimbursed for it. A lot of HSAs now give you a debit card that say, well, just put all your qualified expenses on this card and sort it out with the IRS later. 529s, uh, I haven't known any yet to offer debit cards out of their accounts, but it's very similar. You got, hey, I've got this tuition bill. You submit it. They're going to refund it. And the final thing is, is that it's just like a 401k plan in that every place you look is going to be different. You know, we hear about 401k providers that have great 401k plans, and we have hear about ones that have crappy 401k plans. Same thing is true with 529 accounts. Every state has one. Some Most states have two, and a lot of states have more than two. So you got to do a little bit of research. My favorite website for that is savingforcollege.com. In there, you can put in your information, and it will help kind of guide you to, well, you get a tax break in your state, or you don't, or here's a low-cost plan option. You don't have to use the one that's in your state. You can use anyone across the country. So you could do a little bit of research and find find a good option, whether or not you get some tax deductions and that sort of stuff. So not super complicated, but every bit as much work as sitting down with your 401k and deciding how to, how to invest or sitting down with your Roth IRA and sitting, deciding what to do. There are different types of options inside of these plans, and they have just straight up investments, but also these age-based options where it's almost like a target Target date date fund for your kid. You and I have been on record saying we don't like target date funds that much. Do you like the age-based options, though, when it comes to these plans? No, I think they get too conservative too early, which is kind of the general trend for most of these. Again, rule of thumb, I can't say that this works for everybody, but I like to say when your kid gets to be a freshman in high school, that's when you need your freshman of college money to turn conservative. So you can kind of, you know, well, is that the first day that he goes to high school or the last days in fresh? It doesn't matter, <laughs> you know, wh- wherever, wherever you want to do that, you know, whatever rhythm you want to want to do. But because you've got a known outcome and a known dollar amount, we have to have a known amount of money at the end of this. So you got, so you got to be okay with giving up a few years of that opportunistic growth in order to ensure that the money is available. And uh, so you turn that conservative kind of at that tempo that's worked for us in the past. I think our takeaways are college, man, if you can do it, save early and often, right? Like a Chicago election, save early and often, vote early and often. You don't remember that, that whole thing? Oh yeah. I the, remember uh, and then second and second, like, is that too much of an old guy joke there? Uh, and then, It is also that. It, it is an old guy joke. I realized it right after I said it. And then the second takeaway Also a good time to reassess as the economy opens up and hopefully your personal economy opens up to reassess uh, how you spend money. Chris Kermitzos is easily one of my favorite people, OG. He runs a big uh, podcasting conference called PodFest. He is a person that when you say the word community builder, he's the first person I think of. I haven't met uh, very many people who, no matter what the situation is, I'll call Chris because of the fact that Chris, Chris always knows who the person is that you should call to take care of something truly community builder. And when I think of uh, somebody who's absolutely a giver 
uh, Chris Kermitzos is that person. He also is a heck of a business builder. You look at the business he's built around, not just his podcasting conference, but also the fact that he made this incredible documentary called The Messengers. Chris is a guy who really knows to get the how to get the ball rolling. And the way not to get the ball rolling is to sit and wait. And so if you ever needed a kick in the butt to get that idea off the ground, OG, you're about to get it right now. Here comes Chris Kermitzos. And here he is, my good friend. Glad we finally, finally got him on the podcast. Chris Kermitzos joins us. How are you, man? I'm honored. I'm doing as well as can be expected. Well, I was going to say, I think of you as this huge introvert. And this is, excuse me, what am I talking about? This huge extrovert, this huge introvert. I've I've never once thought of you as an introvert, just to be clear. This has got to be painful, even though you're keeping the family healthy. I mean, how are you holding up mentally? It's tough because you're right. I'm an ex- I'm an extrovert's extrovert. I get energized by being around people. Luckily, I have a great wife and she lets me out every now and then and says, uh, go find a place to go walk. And I'm able to just, you have to compose yourself and then get back in the game. But hanging out with my two little girls is the best. Well, I wanted to talk to you to hang out with us for a minute because of the fact that I also think for a guy like you who's always thinking this has got to be an innovative time for you. Like you got to be thinking up new strategies so that when this is over, Chris is going to be even more powerful than before. My mind always goes to, we all know what we can't do, but what can we do? And the first thing I did was look at people that are being innovative in their fields. Like for instance, there's a pizza guy two hours south of me that is giving a free roll of toilet paper with any $30 order or more. So like those things kind of start sparking your attention. And then I had a friend of mine who is, uh, he's in the produce supply chain. So he's doing really well. He was talking about how people in his niche don't like technology. And I said to him, what better time to start a podcast than now? I go, they have to use all kinds of tech to talk, right? He goes, yeah, that's true. And he started like the produce industry podcast and overnight he is now the leader of that whole industry. So it's like, unfortunately, I have a lot of friends. So I've already had two people that have been impacted by this. So I'm one of those people that know people that have passed. And I have family that are doctors that have made it through. But, um, you know, you got to find the silver lining and everything. But there's some really sad days. And there's other days that very high, joyous moments with family and, and friends like you right now talking. So you just try and put it on the balance and understand that um, in life, we just try and find the silver lining because there's all kinds of suffering that goes with this, you know? Yeah. I think that lots of our friends that hang out with us here, Chris, are in innovative mode like you are. Dark times like these are when you see all kinds of people coming up with new things, which is really why I wanted to talk to you, because if somebody's stuck at home, they think they might have an idea, maybe do something crazy, maybe start a company, a side hustle, a big project. You are a guy who has been through all that stuff before. And I guess I want to start off by asking you about a big project you did which was making a film. And I'm going to play a little bit of the trailer for this film for everybody. This is a documentary about podcasting that you made called The Messengers. I don't listen to radio. I haven't listened to radio in years. And the one day I forgot my phone, it was like nails on a chalkboard. Great podcasting is like porn. Um, You know it when you see it. Oh my God, people have no idea how much work this really is. Don't be afraid to start. Just get started. People are going to always want to have a voice. They're going to want to always share it with people. It's the experience of the excitement of connecting with somebody. Capturing the power of intimacy is something that podcasting does better than any other media. It's got to be something you're passionate about because when you first start out, you're going to be podcasting to nobody. Let the listeners be part of your journey because they're the ones that are going to be spreading the word about, about your show. And there, that's uh, Danny Pena, that last uh, person. He's got a huge uh, video game podcast 
which is fantastic. The first voice talking about it's like porn. A good podcast is like porn. Of course, that's Hall of Famer Dave Jackson in the podcasting industry. But I want to ask you about the making of of this movie. Had, had you made a movie before? Did you know much about the movie industry? No, I, but I had tried to make a movie before, so I knew the pitfalls of how tumultuous it is working with a crew and a bunch of creatives trying to bring a vision. I don't know if people realize there's reasons why huge movies that are funded $50 million never get off the ground. There's so many variables and egos and things that you have to accomplish. It's, it's extremely difficult. Well, and I think about you and this idea that you're, you bring to the table now of going ahead and starting ugly. I can imagine the person that wants things to be excellent. That's Chris Kremitzos, just like people listening to this show you must have felt this. I mean, I can't imagine trying to set off to do this big project like making a movie, Chris. When we started it, the one thing that I think was the thread that held us all together is we wanted to create a visual component to a medium that was audio for our family and friends to understand what we do. And I think that's what kept us all going. And then we, even the crew, the crew had done scripted stuff. And I remember in the beginning, they would do stuff like I would get someone, they're about to get emotional about something. And the one crew member is like, stand down. I'm like, what are you doing? Stand down. He's like, oh, I got to reload a tape. I go, the person was about to start crying about something. It took us an hour to get there. He's like, oh, we're usually doing scripted stuff. I go, this is not scripted. So we had to teach each other like, this is documentary. If you're rolling out a tape, the other guy that's filming, because we had two cameras, he'll get the moment. I can't have you saying stand down. And he was, um, he was like, okay, good point. I didn't know that. So we learned on the fly as we were going. We got better as we went. But luckily, we all would listen to each other. And there were things I was doing I had no clue about how the film guys are working. So I had to learn when they needed to reload and how to bring people in and out of moments. So it was an interesting thing. But how do you start that process? I mean, let's go back to the way beginning. Because for me, a lot of the time, the biggest problem is right between my ears, Chris. Like, how do you set off on that journey when you're like, yeah, I don't know a lot about film, know a bunch about podcasting. But let's go ahead and do this crazy big project. Well, you always find a friend or someone that knows more than you do, right? And then you ask them for some advice or information or the expert online. You do a little bit of tutorials, and then you just got to put your ass on the line and start. Uh, the Messengers, we decided to make it seven days before one of the podfests in 2016, I think it was. And then we announced it to everybody that we're filming a documentary at PodFest. And we started doing interviews in a side room that we had. And they're like, you're making a movie? Like, yeah, when did this happen? We decided seven days ago, me and Neil, and we found a crew last minute. And it, the passion overrides. Our why was so big, the how didn't matter. And I think you have to be willing. And we knew it was going to be ugly. Don't get me wrong. Luckily for us, the passion overrode everything. And we really got really good at it. And we made something amazing but we were willing to make something crappy as well. We, we were willing to see what comes out of it, if that makes sense. Is that the place to start is with the why? Because as you say that, I, I kind of see your face light up. Yeah, your, your why has to be stronger than your how. Even with this book, when I wrote Start Ugly, my good friend said to me, Gabe Aloisi, he published four of his books. He said, you don't worry about the how, I'll worry about the how, you worry about the why. I mean, talk about a great friend. He's like, I'll take care of the how. He goes, you worry about the why and you get me something written and I'll help you. You got to just trust other people do their part and you worry about the why. It's interesting you say that, Chris, because a coach that I'm working with right now had me redefine some stuff. I was always worried about the how. And he said, the, don't think about the how. Think He actually said, think about the who. And, and, and for you, the who was Gabe. Because if I think about the how, I get all wrapped up in my own inability to do stuff. But I know people like, you know, Gabe, who can take it and run with it. Yeah, when he said that, it was, uh, you're right. When I knew who was going to do the how, um, it sounds like uh, Abbott and Costello. When, when, when I knew who was going to do the how, I got my wife. Bam! <laughs> we need to make that a quotable. <laughs> that's great. I, I think that's going to be the title of this episode. Uh, there's another thing here, which is, you know, I mean, this is a financial podcast. I don't know many documentaries that are hitting home runs for making money hand over fist, Chris. What about the money component of this? That's got to be difficult. Well, I was hoping that we would be one of the few that made money. So I, I could tell you, we did not make, we we raised 110% of our goal through crowdfunding. So we knew we needed buy-in from the community. When they saw that I was willing to take my profits that year from PodFest to start the movie, we needed help. So we raised about half. I probably paid the other half was out of my own savings and things I had developed as a side project. We probably brought in, 25% in direct sales through Amazon and iTunes. 
But you have to understand, for me, I have a conference, so I knew overall it would be a great thing to have a documentary once a year to roll out on International Podcast Day or before when you when you buy a ticket to Podfest. Hey, here's a movie that this group made. It creates more value. So my back end is, is the conference itself. So the, we didn't know going in that we might not make any money, but it was also for the community and it was a value add and also helped our conference grow. That's interesting. So you're using the movie as a vehicle to help you get the word out about other things. Yeah. And just like you doing this show. And for me, is one of those things I always want to do a documentary uh, in the beginning. And then over time, it, for me, the documentary helped build my my conference, just like with your show, you have all these sponsors and you've you, but when you start, it starts with a passion and I always want to make a documentary. So I was willing. I had a very good wife, too. I have to clarify that because I had to put a number on a piece of paper and she had to say, yes, it's OK for us to invest money into a fire pit in the beginning to make a movie. Yes, I know your wife and she's clearly your better half. Clearly. <laughs> That's what I had a friend once say, let's admit it. We got really lucky with our wives. And I was kind of, <laughs> I appreciated the comment, but at, at the same time, it's a backhanded. You're like, hey, wait a minute. Like, whoa, 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 pal. On that note, when you talk about crowdfunding, the crowd, as you know, Chris, will often, and, and they're well-meaning people, right? Family members, friends you've had for a long time. They'll look at something crazy like this documentary or somebody listening to this, sitting in their mom's basement now, thinking of this th idea they have. And well-meaning people, you know, Chris, will tell you not to do it. They'll say, forget it. Don't do it. What do you do with those opinions? I was so strong on this idea that I made my mind up whether I was going to get crowdfunding or not. We're going to make it hook or crook. So I had the crew that was bought in. I said, listen, I'll pay you what I can right now. We'll figure it out. So they were working without money as we were going after the money ran out. Crowdfunding money came in. They got paid. But then they just knew I was passionate enough that we were going to make it happen. So the messengers was a project I, I didn't care about what other people had to say, if that makes sense. I was so passionate about the why I didn't really trust me. People told me, what are you crazy? Now podcasters are crazy by nature. So they all approved it, but it was like family and friends are like, listen, let me sit you down and tell you about movies. <laughs> What's the bigger message here? Because your book start ugly is about innovation and change. And I feel like the messengers is kind of a microcosm of that same message. Yeah, someone would ask, ask me, like, what do you do? Because you made a documentary, you run a conference, you wrote a book. Like, if you really look at the common themes of everything I do, it's helping people find their why and figuring out the how and creating something that helps improve their lives and the lives around them better. And the book Start Ugly is, is a parable, really. It was written in a story format, very short and sweet, about someone that couldn't get out of their own way until they had to learn how to start ugly. And I always tell people... My book is not about starting ugly, staying ugly. It's about starting ugly and then perfectly executing from there. So when they look at someone like yourself who started a podcast, when you first start and you look back at those episodes, I'm assuming it's not the same <laughs> style of format you're doing now. You improve and you, you learn as you go. But if you never started, you wouldn't be where you are now. I remember a great podcaster, Roman Mars, telling me something that I still believe to this day. He said, when he said this a couple of years ago, he said, I'm embarrassed by the shows I made a year ago. And I hope like hell, I'm embarrassed a year from now by the shows I'm making today. Yeah, you get better and better. Uh, when I first send out my manuscript, I have to share this with you. I sent it to a friend who's like a literary, like they're really into editing and writing. Here's the feedback on my first draft of this book. First, please know that I love you. And I was like, oh, man, this is going to be bad. <laughs> but this is not good. On the plus side, you have that starting ugly thing down, which gives <laughs> you something to work with. <laughs> so luckily for me, she followed it up with like really good feedback after that, which I was open to listening. She basically talked about the hero's journey. And I had I had not put my person on a hero's journey. And I, I took that feedback and actually made the book so much better. But I had to endure honest feedback like that up in the early uh, draft phase of the book. Well, so then let's draw the line because, because there clearly is a line because I have people, I've always had people in my corner that are like that. I enjoy having people that are kind of Gordon Ramsay ish in my corner, people that will give me the brutal truth. But on the other hand, I know they love me and I know they're supportive, right? So as long as they love me and they're supportive, the fact that they rip what I do makes it better quicker. But how do you distinguish those people from the people, Chris, we were talking about earlier, which are those people going, yeah, you shouldn't do this. I'll give you a really good example. 
not even should shouldn't do this. I had I was exhibiting at another trade show, and a lady came up to me at my booth exhibiting Podfest, which I believe is a very amazing event. We put a lot of work into it, and she said to me, "I went to Podfest." I'm like, "Oh, how'd you like it?" She goes, "It was terrible. I hated every part of it." <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't know if I was wearing a hat that day. She didn't know who I was. I said, "Really? Tell me more." And then she went on about her hosting. I said, "What about your hosting?" Oh, I hate my hosting. And I realized this is a person that just doesn't like anything put in front of them. Podfest was too friendly. It was too, so like, you're never going to please those people. And they're always going to tell you, they're like a broken record, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I loved her in the moment for who she is, but I'm not going to take in the venom that she's saying. Cause there's nothing, she, she didn't like anything that I asked her about on, on all the different stuff of podcasting. So you have to realize, okay, that's not someone that loves and cares for me. That's going to give me some constructive feedback saying, Hey, this was great. But did you ever consider when we're doing this, we don't have drinks or whatever it is feedback. So you just have to, I always talk about knowing what feedback to let in. And, you know, online, there's a term called trolls, making sure not to let the trolls get to you because it's just not worth your life to try and please those, those individuals. It's just never going to happen. Defining the person's point of view. Then I think then is job one is what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's critical in allowing to receive that feedback, knowing where are they coming from? Like my father, I love my dad, but he's always going to tell me like, oh, that's dangerous. You shouldn't do that. He's just from that cloth or like, what's a promoter? What, what do you do for a living? He, he asked me that just for fun every week. Now he's very proud of me, but he loves saying, what do you do again? You know, so it's um those characters. That's uh, Katie, my wife takes it very personally. And I'm like, why you? Not not my parents, but just people that do that. I go, why do you take it personally? That's just who they are. That's what, that's their character trait. Just appreciate it. Move on. <laughs> Don't listen to them, you know, but have some fun, but move on. But I think that's important. I mean, you make an important point is that uh, you've got to be comfortable with innovation and with change. And in a world where a lot of people aren't, uh, there's always going to be some friction there, I think, Chris. Friction in the case study in the book that we use is 100 years old, and I did that on purpose. So someone can't say like, oh, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not online or I don't have this. The case study we use is of a lumber mill. So you can't get it. Like I, I really had to dummy proof it. So where someone reads this, they're like, wow, this could apply to anybody. Look at Elon Musk. He was talking about, um, you know, now with airplanes, to have a person man an airplane in the military is like, we're, we're in drone technology. Talk about innovation. We're in hyperspeed, innovating on all fronts, finances. There's innovators. You and I go to FinCon. There's always a booth. You're like, what are you doing? And they're, they're revolutionizing the entire industry. And it's like one or two guys sitting at a booth. And you know, 10 years from now, it'll be like one of the larger companies and they've hacked the code. So you just got to be on top of it and roll with the punches and not be afraid to change. Because look at what happened to us now. There's people, the whole the whole world had to change. We're all on video chat calls, you know, all day long. I felt like a big, huge message here is, and I don't know how to phrase this. Maybe it's just don't get in your own way. I think, Joe, the one thing that I would phrase is with the start ugly philosophy, obviously you want to identify something to do something new. But on step six, we have what's called set check-in dates to assess. If you determine you don't like what you started, stop, congrats, you don't have to think about it anymore. Or B, if you love what you're doing, decide what your endeavor will become, new business, new division, side hustle, hobby, et cetera, set milestones accordingly. So I think with um, what really gets me upset with podcasting is people will start a podcast and then they're going to benchmark themselves after my wife or yourself who've been in the game for a long time. And within like a month, they're like, I'm a failure. I'm like, why? Well, look at what they're doing. And I'm like, yeah, but do you love what you're doing? They're like, yeah. Is it something you could do as a hobby? Yeah, I would love to do it as a hobby. Well, why don't you put in that category? And if it turns into something more later, um, you could at least enjoy it. Or if you don't like what you're doing, great. Maybe doing a podcast wasn't right for you. Find something else. Maybe it's an American culture thing. We villainize people quitting something. I think the the bigger crime is not starting something and not realizing if you like it or not. Yeah, that's what, you know, I'm a big fan of board games and I get frustrated because so many people I try to teach board game rules to get angry when they're not perfect at it right away. Like, well, some of these games are kind of, you know, it, it's okay to have a learning game. And I feel like your first, in, I mean, since you and I are both podcasters talking about that, you're, you're, you know, your first hundred episodes are, you, I mean, we're on episode 900 and I still feel like it's, I'm still in my learning game. You know, I love near the back of the book, you have innovate, create, refine, repeat, innovate, create, refine, repeat. And I think this idea of, um, of self-reflection and of having a, I don't know, what's the, what's the manufacturing term, the continuous improvement 
you know, thinking about continuous improvement is such an important piece of what you're saying. Yeah. And Start Ugly, the way I came up with Start Ugly was years ago, I was in front of a business group and they were asking me, I was doing videos on YouTube. They're like, what kind of camera do you use? And I was like, it's not, you know, you hear about this. What mic do you use? It's like Lou Mangiello famously says, it's like asking Michelangelo, what kind of brush does he use? (laughs) Which I love that example. So I got frustrated and I said to them, just start, just start ugly. But I said it very frustratingly and I felt guilty because I felt like I cursed at them. And someone raised their hand. They're like, can you tell us more about that start ugly concept? So I knew the words resonated subconsciously with people to like, it took the blame off of it. But start ugly is the same thing. Like you said, lean six Sigma, all these things you hear in corporate philosophies. Yeah. yeah. It's just a simple way to understand it, implement it for yourself, for your kids. The, the trouble we have is most of us, I had a brother-in-law that's in, in this book. He was thinking about doing microbrew. And I said to him, you know, you're probably wasting more time thinking about it than doing it. And then he goes, huh? He goes, I've, I've been thinking about it for eight years. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you just lost eight years of time thinking. Now he, since then he started it. He's really happy. The beer doesn't taste that great, but he's happy he's doing microbrew. <laughs> he told me that, by the way. He's like, John, if you're listening, I love you, brother. He, he loves your show. So I want to make sure he gets a shout out. <laughs> the, the one I hope the beer's gotten better since, just, just in case. <laughs> you just want to make sure you're not talking about him behind his back. He's driving down the road right now going, what the? What's my brother talking smack about me? I, I love him. He's the best. Well, that's, and, and you know, Chris, to your point, and for anybody thinking about starting something and worried about beginning, if you ask OG or I, either one of us, the one thing we'd like to take back is the year that we waited. Had had we started a year earlier when we first talked about it, instead of getting all in our head about the right equipment and the right, how the heck do you get this thing onto people's phone? Like, how do you get it on their device? I thought that was going to be impossible. Turns out, as you know, that's the simplest thing ever. I let that sidetrack me for a year before we decided to do it. The book is called Start Ugly, A Timeless Tale About Innovation and Change, available on Amazon. On Amazon and Kindle is out now, so we just got the Kindle out for people. But I do recommend, if you can get the physical book, the cover, if you keep it on your desk, it will help your productivity because those words will stare back at you. And they kind of resonate when you're looking at it. You're like, okay, what am I delaying? (laughs) Which is good. You need to put that in front of yourself. The second thing, the messengers, for people that are specifically interested in podcasting, like you and I are, uh, the messengers is available where? Uh, just go on YouTube. We released it free for everybody. Took it off of Amazon. It's the Messengers semicolon a podcast documentary, 59 minutes total running time. I'm probably going to recirculate it through Facebook now that people are home looking to start podcasting. We'd love for you to watch it. It's free of charge for anyone that wants to learn why these crazy people make podcasts and what the payoff is, which is usually helping another human being out there. I wish to myself that there were maybe a conference where people could get together and talk podcasting and and have this nice warm room of people appreciative of each other. Does a place like that exist, Chris? Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> it's uh, podfestexpo.com. Uh, Thank you. You're too kind. It's a community and we love each other and we watch out for each other. If you want to join us, just go to podfestexpo.com, opt in, you'll get our updates or join our Facebook group, which is one word podfest. One of my favorite parts about podfest is that, uh, and this isn't just for podcasters. I think it's just for everybody. One of my favorite interviews, Chris, I ever did was with a guy named Ken Honda. And he talked about the importance of gratitude in your life. And at the end of podfest, people get up on stage and they just share their gratitude. And sometimes it's with you. Sometimes it's with the volunteers, sometimes with other people in the group. It's, it's just amazing seeing all the gratitude at the end of there, which gives me this big, warm, fuzzy feeling. And I think if we all practice gratitude more often, man, what a great world this would be. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, my wife asked me to sometimes to an annoyance, what are you grateful for? That's the question we ask every day. We ask our girls, what are you grateful for? Uh, selfishly, I'm always uh, my four year old. I was like, say daddy first. <laughs> but, <laughs> but usually I'm like third or fourth in line. <laughs> but but it's um, what a blessing to, you know, for me, like you said, I have an amazing wife to always bring it back to what are you grateful for? What are three things you're grateful for? Or when she knows I'm not having a great day. Hey, what are you grateful for right now? She'll ask me. So ask yourself what you're grateful for. And, you know, life is full of challenges anyways, no matter who you are, or where you're at. But to focus on what you're grateful for makes it much sweeter. Well, I'm grateful for you, my friend, for hanging out with us today and talking about getting started. I absolutely, absolutely love it. And thanks for taking the time. Uh, Thank you for all that you do, Joe. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. 
Hey, stackers, I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And in honor of Earth Day, I think this is a great opportunity for this presidential candidate, hashtag Doug2020, to share what I call my Make Earth Great Again plan. Consists of three major pillars that will get the environment back on track. First, are you fed up with the current toilet paper debacle? With Doug as president, you'll be able to wipe to your hands content because I propose a reusable toilet paper. Not only are you going to save gobs of money, probably should have picked a different word there, but you'll save in the environment while you're at it. It's a win-win. And for the second pillar, we all know that too much methane gas is bad for the earth. To combat this, effective day one of my presidency, I'm banning Taco Bell. No offense to the Gordito, those are so amazing, but if you've ever walked down into the basement after OG's devoured a chalupa, God bless you. Oh my God. Hey, it's funnier if people laugh with you, OG, with you. I got to give myself a little credit here, though. My focus on number two will almost single-handedly save the environment. Booyah! Before I share my third and final pillar, I'll share with you today's trivia. The year the first Earth Day was celebrated, 1970, what governmental agency was founded to help save the Earth? I'll be back with your answer faster than you can say, that's not smog. The thrill of the financial markets. Clicking the order on another day trading win. Introducing the perfect coffee. For that perfect moment when you've just nailed an upside-down candlestick all-in move. Or that glorious time as the sun's coming up and you've pushed through the nighttime hours, trading Tokyo, Hong Kong, Frankfurt and London exchanges, and you just barely eked out that option harness that saved your ass before your 2450 call expired. What's the perfect coffee for that moment? Pour yourself some. I got lucky again, Brew. Imagine delicious trades and a fantastic taste. Sure, you might not sleep because that caffeine combines beautifully with your betting the farm lifestyle, but heck, it's nearly worth it because you found the perfect fix to keep you motoring, staring at that monitor, waiting to squeeze out another quarter point on the VIX. Every time I push the button on another Wisdom Tree Coffee 3x daily leveraged out of the money option, I sip on my I got lucky again brew and think I got lucky again. I haven't gotten lucky in weeks, but I'm still up all night trading. Are you coming to bed? Be there in a couple hours, honey. That doesn't stop me from drinking a cup or three of I got lucky again coffee. Sure, coffee won't make you millions. But you'll feel like a million while you drink. I got lucky again, Brew. Available now. Hey, trivia fans, it's your presidential pal, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And I know you've been sitting on pins and needles waiting to hear my third pillar to save the environment as part of my Make Earth Great Again plan. Hashtag Doug 2020. Without further ado, we're going green, people. Totally, totally green. By the time I've had my way, all you're going to see is green. Hey, Steve, cue up some patriotic music for me, could you? Oh, yeah, man, that's perfect. Love it. Okay, uh, look, houses are going to be green. Streets, green. Sidewalks, also green. Restaurants, yup. Green, 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 green everywhere. Have you heard about going green yet? See no action? Neighbor Doug is the man of action. And with your vote, I will paint this whole world green. Oh, man, I can just see it now. The crowds are hoisting me on the shoulders. Mothers are whispering into their children's ears while they point at me in admiration. USA, USA. It's going to be amazing. Now that we're sufficiently fired up, because I know I am, let's get you all a slice of today's trivia answer. The question was, the year that the first Earth Day was celebrated, 1970, what governmental agency was founded to help save the Earth? 
In the wake of elevated concern about environmental pollution, the Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, was established on December 2nd, 1970. Today, the EPA has an annual budget of over $6 billion, and I'm going to tell you what, stackers, that's going to buy a lot of green paint. It's all coming together perfectly. We'll be the greenest country on Earth before you know it. Dunk 2020. Big thanks to Chris Kermitzos for hanging out on Dead Shortwave today. You know, OG, I'll reiterate, if there was anything you and I would have done differently with this podcast, it was start the year earlier when we were first talking about it. Even though we joke that you probably shouldn't start one in the first place, assuming that we would have, we should have started it a year earlier when we talked about it. Well, I mean, this could be true for just about any business. When's the best time to plant a tree 10 years ago when's the next best time right freaking now but we're so consumed like chris points out we're so consumed with getting it exactly right that we do nothing i think if we realize it's going to be ugly no matter what start ugly man start ugly you know i think that's the difference between being a entrepreneur and owning your own business owning your own business we talk about like the uh, the e-myth and that really great book by Michael Gerber, in the e-myth, there's different types of business owners, right? There's the entrepreneur who is the orchestrator of the whole thing, but then other people who are in small business are really good at the thing that they're really good at. You know, the, the painter who owns a painting company, but he's the only employee. He's just a, you know, he's a small business owner, solopreneur. A lot of this boils down to risk-taking strategic risk taking. I was talking to a client a couple of uh, weeks ago and we were talking about small business ownership and, and how to be an entrepreneur, your business better grow at rates greater than market rates. Yeah. It has to, otherwise you're a fool. It better be doing 20% a year. If it's not doing 20% a year, you should just put all your money in small caps or in the S and P. Sometimes you need that push. I'm glad that he provided that today. Yeah. Just get it done. And well, it's a great time to get it done. Hey, OG, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's biggest questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first, your loved ones, and your time. It's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. Super simple application. It's online. Get it taken care of. We talked about earlier building from the ground up. Getting your life insurance in place, one of the first things that you want to do if people rely on your income. Today, we're throwing out the lifeline to our friend Ben. Say hi, Ben. Hey, Joe. Hey, OG. My name is Ben. I'm calling from Wisconsin. I'm 29 years old. My question for you guys today is about my pension, 401k, and other stocks. I'm currently working. It's not so much just a COVID thing that I am speaking of, I guess my question is, is since I do have a pension and 401k and being union, it's based off my hours. It's all put in there automatically um, through the hours I've worked at a certain rate that's decided by the contract. So I have nothing to do with that. I just have to work to get that put in there. So my question is, now that I've become more intrigued with investing on my own and have opened my own brokerage account through TD Ameritrade, I was wondering, do I still invest in stocks that I'm already invested in through my 401k, like such as Apple or Microsoft, um, being those bigger stocks and also showing potential for growth? Do I put my money there personally or do I leave that for my 401k hours worked to be contributed through different bonds and different funds like that? Or am I safe to buy into those personally? Is it a good idea? Is it a bad idea? I guess I'm just looking for your guys' thoughts. I'm very new to this, but also very intrigued. Great question, Ben. And, and he hit the 92nd mark, but I think we got it, Ben. By the way, did you hear the red? Yeah, he was working. Was Ben changing his oil and calling at the same time? Because that'd be badass. I just got to say, if Ben is making money and taking care of his money at the same time, good for you, brother. Let's talk about this because there's lots of lots of beginners out there. And this idea of 
having the same investments in your 401k at work and then having them again in your Roth IRA and having them again in just your brokerage account. Is that a good idea or a bad idea? Here's how I would think about this. Firstly, if it's individual positions and you're buying those in your 401k and you're buying those in your outside accounts, let's just address that briefly for a second. It's very tempting to assume that Microsoft and Amazon and Apple are going to be the only companies in, for now until the end of time that are wildly successful. However, if you look at the long-term track record of take a company like Microsoft, yeah, they're $180 a share, whatever it is today. But there was about a 10-year period where they were flat, where they, didn't, they, they were at 30 bucks a share for 10 straight years or whatever it was, or 40 bucks. So just because they're hot right now doesn't mean it is forever, which is why we advocate diversification and buying uh, ETF or a mutual fund that owns a lot of this stuff because you're not going to be able to pick all the winners all the time. So if we just eliminate the should I buy Microsoft in three accounts debate and instead say should I buy the same mutual fund in three accounts or the same ETF in three accounts, there's nothing wrong with that at all. You know, the question is what's better, more or less? Well, more is definitely better. But you want to be sure that you're affording yourself a decent amount of diversification. Very simply, you could just look at big companies and small companies and non-U.S. companies. Maybe you could add some real estate in there. I mean, with four or five different positions spread across all of your accounts, you could be pretty well diversified. It's up to you to decide what the best place is for that. Maybe your 401k has a really good small company fund, but all the rest of the funds are high cost or whatever. So use the small company fund in your 401k. And since you've got a brokerage account at TD, you can buy whatever you want. Maybe buy the rest of the stuff in your brokerage account at TD. And then every so often, probably around once a year is adequate. Just look and make sure that the percentages look about right. And there's no right answer on that either. It's just whatever you want it to be. Do you want it to be 25% in each bucket? That's fine. Just look. And if one's got 30% in it, you take a little off of that and put it in the one that's not at 25. So... This doesn't have to be complicated. The one thing I do want to draw your attention to is your pension. There's not a lot of companies that offer pensions anymore, and the fact that you have access to it is great. But there's some caveats to that. The first one is don't be too reliant on it. I think all of your financial planning needs to be based on the pension not being there. Everybody says the same thing about their pensions. Oh, but I work for insert company here. They will never get rid of their pension. Let me tell you something. They do. And they do violently at the very worst times. And 30 years between his age now and the time that he can get, I think he said yeah. he's 29. That's a long time for a company to have to not screw it up. And then the other 40 years that you're living. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know, after you start taking it. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of distance between now. Now, I'm not saying that money completely goes away. They shut it down. You get a little bit or they give you a check for the difference or something. But don't be lulled into into not funding anything for retirement because you go, well, I got a pension and that's going to be OK. You got to do your own thing. And then if you get a pension, you can retire a little early. Or if you get a pension, it's extra cash in the uh, accounts when you do retire. And the other thing you want to think about with your pension is generally that money is going to be very conservative. It's going to grow at a very low rate. Uh, you mentioned it's based on how many hours you work and your pay rate and the contract. But even so, that's their contribution. Once it's there, it's not going to grow very fast either. So you want to take that into consideration when you're building out the rest of your investment plan. People sometimes will look at this and say, well, I need to have some some conservative stuff in my retirement plan because you know, I've got this 401k and a Roth and a brokerage account. Where should the conservative stuff go? Well, if you got a pension, nowhere. Your pension is the conservative thing. So just be aware of that. And just like we talked about with the 529 earlier, there's nothing wrong with doing as much as possible now. It just all it does between 29 and 40 when there's still a lot of stuff going on in your life, but nowhere near as much stuff as when you're 40. Trust me. <laughs> Let me tell you what happens between 29 and 40. Lots of stuff. The more flexibility that you build in the plan for yourself between now and then, uh, the happier you're going to be because there's going to come a time where maybe you can't save all the money in your 401k because you've got two kids and one's in private school and you're saving for college and you have a mortgage and you got to redo the kitchen and mom needs help. You know, it's like you don't want to be faced with, I've got to decide what should I do, do me or should I do other stuff for other people because 
you've got all these competing priorities. While you have the flexibility, while you have the opportunity and the excess income and savings opportunity today, take full advantage of it so that if something goes wrong along the way, eh, you can let off the gas a little. Thanks for that question, Ben. By the way, congratulations on uh, getting rolling on this stuff. I like the ratchet in the background. Yeah, I do too. It is exciting hearing somebody call in who's uh, taking control. Nice job. And for that, Gertrude's going to send him some uh, Stacky Benjamin's Haven Life Greatest Money Show on her swag. If you'd like OG and I to tackle your question, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. Hey, that's going to do it for today. A lot of people to thank. Doug's going to handle that for us. But if you're somebody who is speaking of reevaluating, if you're reevaluating your team long-term to work on your money, OG and his team are taking on new clients. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG for more there. All right, that's going to do it. Doug, what should we have learned today? I'll tell you what we should have learned today. Doug for president will fix everything. That's what we should have. I mean, everybody learned that. Oh, the other the other stuff? Okay, fine. First, if you want to help your kids with college, start now. It'll likely end up being more expensive than you think. Done. Second, take a lesson from our guest, Chris Kremitzos. Don't wait to be perfect. Start ugly early. Oh, that reminds me of a Thursday night in college. Huh. But the big takeaway... Apparently, Cohen Green doesn't actually mean just painting everything green. I knew that. I knew that. Unless Joe's mom's pulling my leg big time, I uh, think I probably need a new third pillar for my Make Earth Great Again plan. Uh, Oh, man. Hey, what do you got for me, stackers? Head to the basement and uh, give me all your ideas on our Facebook basement group. I could use a little help on this one. Special thanks to Chris Kremitzos for coming down to the basement and sharing how to start ugly with your idea. In fact, you can check out his book, Start Ugly. You'll find a link to it on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. This show is created by Joe Saul Seahigh, produced by Taylor Stevens, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjaminsCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I do not like computer jokes. Not one bit. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. Well, I finally got caught up. I watch shows finally. a little more slowly lately than Cheryl does. So I caught up with her and she watched the third season and I just finished it yesterday as we record this season three of the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. This is the first of a million tours. Leagues, kid. Gotta start acting like professionals. Susie Meyerson, remember the face? Yes, sir. Susie Meyerson, remember the face. That guy doesn't work here. What? Hey, give me that bat. I met this perfectly marvelous girl in this perfectly wonderful place as I lifted a glass to the start of a marvelous year. Before you knew it, she called on the phone. Invite. A little warning would have been nice. Go, 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 go. I was no longer alone. 
lighting. I am not a prostitute. I'm a comic. Is there a difference? Yes. Prostitutes get paid more. Hilarious. You should go into comedy. I did. In truly remarkable This is a story for people who don't know the marvelous Mrs. Maisel. The story of a married New York housewife who realizes when her husband tries to go into comedy in season one that she's incredibly funny. Now we're in season three, and she not only is a professional comedian, OG, she's headed on the road, opening for a character who seems a lot like Johnny Mathis back in the 50s. So a guy with just an incredibly sultry voice. Everybody loves him. So she becomes Johnny Mathis's, in this case, the guy's name is Shy Baldwin, Shy Baldwin's opening act and uh, hilarity as it did in season one and season two ensues. This show's won three Golden Globes and it's for a very good reason. Although nothing that happens in this TV show seems realistic or frankly that believable, the writing is so snappy And it's so funny and the ride is so good and you're so invested in the characters that I got done with season three. I can't wait for season four to come out. Every season of this show, OG, I finish and I go, can't wait for the next one. So uh, big. I saw the previews for this. So what do you think? Is it it an OG quality uh, make? I do. I think out of the box, you'll go, yeah, I don't think so. But but I think by the end of episode one of season one, you'll go, this is not what I thought it was. Because I'll tell you, when I first heard the marvelous Mrs. Maisel about a uh, rich New York housewife in the 50s going into comedy. No, thank you. <laughs> Pass. That's kind of what I thought, but you're, you've got some pretty good reviews on it so far. It is. It, it just gets better and better. It's so good. So I'm turning my attention now to a show I should have watched, which is uh, Ozark. I've also started Fleabag. I started that on a plane. Remember back when you could fly? Remember those days? I do. <laughs> the, the last flight I took, I watched the show Fleabag, and that one has won some awards. So maybe I'll start with that, get on that next. But big thumb up. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Well, stackers, the show is over, but the party is just beginning here. You know why? Because it's Military Appreciation Month, and we are giving out shout-outs to all of our friends who have served in the military. And let's point uh, the finger right here at our good friend OG, who spent time in the military. And of course, we know what a giver he is, even when he pretends like he's being uh, Mr. Surly. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members to help them reach their goals. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate, and you'll see all their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. They've got all kinds of resources on their site, like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. So much going on. Just head over to NavyFederal.org celebrate. Take a look at all the Military Appreciation Month offers and their usual offers. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.